Please also open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, where at long last we'll take a few minutes finally this morning and share together the story of the ten plagues. Hooray! Yeah, you've all just been on the edge of your seat waiting for it, right? Maybe in my imagination. I don't know. But uh, so far, so far in Exodus, we've seen only bits and pieces, really, of God making His case to the people of Israel then and to us again. God making His case for people to choose and serve Him as God. Among other things, we've seen that God is a God who hears and responds to the cries of His people, including even the cry of a baby boy floating in a basket, and I'm sure the cries of His mother who was forced to abandon Him there. And we have seen that God is a God who just loves doing extraordinary things with and through ordinary people, like those two very ordinary midwives right off the top in Exodus chapter 1, rewarding them for their courageous mercy. And we've seen that God is patient with our reluctance to serve, as with Moses at the burning bush. And we've also seen that our God is a God who not only loves those who love Him, but He also loves the lost. He also deeply loves people that don't even know Him. He wants so badly for everyone to choose to serve Him. He loves everyone that much. And we've also seen so far only bits and pieces of God showing that He and He alone is the God of creation. He alone is the one who ultimately can and does bring true and lasting order, shalom, from chaos in life. Not the however impressive looking gods of Egypt. And certainly not the however intimidating figure of Pharaoh who himself was considered a god in Egypt. God is truly the only ultimate authority, His symbol of authority, the staff of Moses and Aaron, God's staff we saw last week, remember, that literally devours, swallows Pharaoh's staffs, the symbol of Pharaoh's authority. And while each of these things alone is perhaps, as we've just sung, more than enough to choose to serve our God, They're all endearing and impressive and powerful and full of His unconditional love and grace, each one of them. But compared to, at least, what's about to happen next, those however impressive, wonderful things compared to that are merely bits and pieces of God making His case for people to choose and serve Him. As impressive and winsome as Exodus has already revealed that God is, The author of Exodus has been pointing toward and foreshadowing the plagues and the Red Sea, which are about to happen next. So far, God has been merely clearing His throat and making His case to choose to serve Him, and now He's about to throw His head back and sing. And you recall from last week that going into the plague story, I wanted us to keep in mind that The showdown, this showdown between God and the gods of Egypt is real. God is not making His case against nothing or no one or against the air. Whether Pharaoh himself or the might of Egypt, or even more so 
against those gods of Egypt, which the Bible clearly tells us are in fact demons. There's some real power, supernatural powers, that are also hoping and trying to force people to serve them. Now, one brief housekeeping note on that point before we continue. If you heard the sermon last week, then you recall that I suggested that the golden calf, in Aaron's words, just came out of the fire. That's what the Bible says. And I suggested that when Aaron said that, there's a possibility at least that Aaron was telling the truth. And then maybe demonic powers indeed played a role in having all that melted gold form that idol and perhaps even animated it because it says it came out of the fire, perhaps even surprising Aaron as he tended the fire. Now, this past week, two of you asked me about Exodus 32, verse 4, where it says that Aaron took the gold the people gave him and, quote, made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool, close quote. And your question was excellent. It was, doesn't that verse show that Aaron and not demonic power was responsible for the calf? And that Aaron was indeed making some sort of lame excuse when he said, like a kid with his hand caught in the cookie jar, they gave me the gold, I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. So great question. Now, unfortunately, last week, In editing down the sermon to fit the time we had last week, I edited out the explanation of that apparent contradiction. And I shouldn't have. I apologize. I should have kept it in there. Because the very words of God are at stake here. So let me take a minute or two now to make it clear why I think it's possible that Aaron was telling the truth when he said, Out came this calf, Exodus 32, verse 4, notwithstanding. And speaking of that verse, the key is one Hebrew word here in Exodus 32, verse 4. It's the word hevet, H-E-V-E-T in Hebrew. Say hevet. The NIV translates hevet into the English word tool. Aaron fashioned the calf with a hevet, a tool. And that's a perfectly possible translation of the word hevet. But another possible translation of the word hevet, and it's one some scholars tell us is the primary meaning of hevet, is that hevet means scarf or handkerchief or cloth. And so using this translation of the word hevet, what the grammar in Exodus 32 verse 4 in Hebrew at least allows is the verse might be better interpreted to say that Aaron collected all the gold in a cloth and somehow a calf of gold inexplicably emerged. One commentator puts it this way. The primary interpretation of the word hevet allows us to imagine that Aaron pulled the calf out of a handkerchief. This was no act of craftsmanship. It was magical and it surprised even Aaron according to that commentator. Furthermore, a havet, or handkerchief, was often associated with magic or the supernatural in the ancient world and elsewhere in the Bible. 
Quick test. How many can remember where a handkerchief is associated with magic in the Bible? Oh, I'm going to have to preach through Acts again. Spent like two years doing that. In the New Testament, right? Even when we, remember where we read? That even the Apostle Paul's handkerchief, his hevet, healed the sick. So, even thousands of years later, a thousand years later, there's something linked with supernatural power in hevet. Last, demonic power in play here at least helps explain how Aaron is still allowed to carry on as high priest after this incident. Did you ever wonder about that, if indeed it was just a lame excuse? I mean, God takes a pretty hard line. He sets the bar high with the leadership of his people and especially the high priest. Read Leviticus. As the high priest in particular is God's main representative to his people. Just ask Moses about the standard to which God holds the leaders of his people. Moses, who despite everything he faithfully did, was forbidden to enter the promised land because he hit a rock with a stick. And if Aaron indeed, on all on his own idea and intent, fashioned that idol with a tool, how on earth is he allowed to be con- uh, continue on as high priest? I mean, that is in clear contradiction to the second of the Ten Commandments. They just received at Sinai, God's voice still booming and ringing in their ears. So for me, anyway, that just doesn't add up. And together with the possible translation, if not primary translation of Havet, I tend to lean with and side with those scholars who conclude that there was some demonic monkey business going on with that gold in the fire. And that it's possible in reading that story, likely even in my opinion, that Aaron saying what happened. It just came out of the fire, Moses. All right. Now maybe that's more explanation than we needed. But as I hope you know by now, I take the Word of God very, very seriously. And I I just didn't want there to be any misunderstanding between us that I was ignoring something that seemed very clearly otherwise in Scripture. When in fact there are two possibilities here surrounding the word Havet. So, and, and let me say this before we move on. My sincere thanks to those two people who asked me about this. Please continue to do so. If it seems ever to you I'm running contradictory with the Bible, please. Okay, in, in my lifetime so far, I've made three mistakes, so chances are that someday I'll make another one. <laughs> All kidding aside, please keep holding me accountable to Scripture. Please. Okay, I, I'm just a human being too. And I will commit oversights, and I'll make mistakes, hopefully not too often. Please, hold me accountable. Your questions are not only welcome, but they're needed. Okay, so great question. What about Exodus 32, verse 4? I hope to get more of those. Bottom line, even without this alternate interpretation of Havet, and without the story of the golden calf, the Bible still clearly presents the plagues as a real contest between God and the gods of Egypt and the demons standing behind them. The plagues are God's judgment on the gods of Egypt, Exodus says, including Pharaoh who set himself up as one. And so, 
with the foreshadowing so far pointing to the plagues and the Red Sea, this foreshadowing coming to climactic close in Exodus 7 with the staff of God swallowing the staffs of Pharaoh, God now takes a big step forward even more to center stage. And he pulls back the curtain even further. And he reveals for all the world to see the extent of his power and his authority versus the power of Pharaoh and the demonic gods of Egypt. Now we certainly don't have time this morning to cover each of the ten plagues in detail. The story covers five chapters. So I'm going to trust that you either know the basic story or if you don't yet, I'll give you an assignment. Please read sometime this week the story of the ten plagues. And that should help fill any gaps you might have after this morning. And it's also going to help you prepare for Palm Sunday, which is next week already. Can you believe it? And the story of the ten plagues will help you prepare for what we're doing Easter the week after. We're going to continue on in our Exodus series with an Easter emphasis, of course. It's really pretty cool the way God lined it up. The stories coming up in Exodus line up perfectly with the Palm Sunday and Easter emphasis. Isn't that fun? So we'll have fun. But in the time we have left this morning, I thought I'd try and add a few things that maybe you haven't come across before in the plague story. Maybe many of us haven't heard before. I know I didn't until uh, just a couple of years ago. A new angle, perhaps, to add to your chest already, your treasure chest of what you know of this well-traveled and well-known story. So let's start with this. There have been many different attempts to organize the ten plagues into what the author intended as a literary pattern or progression. And I'm sure many of those attempts provide valuable insight into the story. I've chosen to share with you one such attempt, at least part of it, that I that in particular I find especially good. And you see it on the screen. It's a pretty impressive chart, isn't it? There will be a quiz immediately following the end of the service. This structure is one proposed by a Jewish scholar named Nahum Sarna, who is regarded by both Jews and Christians as an expert in Exodus. In Exodus. And you can see from the chart that Sarna organizes the plagues into three sets of three, followed by a climactic tenth plague. And such a structure immediately brings to mind another famous set of biblical threes, the threes of the days of creation, where there are two sets of three days, followed by a seventh day of rest. In creation, you remember in Genesis 1, days 1 through 3 in creation, God sets the stage by creating time and then separating sky, water, land, and plants, creating a space almost. And then in the second set of three, days 4 through 6, with the stage now set, God fills that stage with sun, moon, and stars, birds and fish, and animals, and man and woman. Two sets of three days each in creation. And then, like in the plagues, the tenth day, a number of completion, 
in creation, the seventh day, a number of creation. I think this explains the mystery of why in the Psalms and in the prophets, sometimes it's talked about that there were only seven plagues. How can that be? They had Exodus when they wrote Psalms and the prophets. Why would they sing of only seven plagues? If they read that there's ten? See, I think the psalmist and the prophets caught it caught the symmetry and caught the symbolism in the plagues with creation and they were bringing it home with seven just to make that connection uh, in my opinion. I don't know what else would explain that. So you can see on the chart some other interesting comparisons among the three series of plagues some of which we may get to in time some other week but all of which I think I just wanted to show them all to you because I think it lends credibility to the intentional literary structure that Sarna proposes, the author of the plague story intended. And if Sarna is right, then that literary structure of the the plague story itself screams creation. And that creation fits exactly with the content of the plagues themselves. Each and every plague involves something in creation going absolutely berserk. First, the Nile River turns to blood. Then it swarms with frogs that invade the land. Lice infest man and beast. The land is overrun with swarms of flies. Some sort of pestilence or deadly animal disease strikes the livestock in the field. Man and beast suffer inflammation of the skin that breaks out in boils. Devastating hail lashes the countryside. Locusts descend in destructive swarms. Egypt is plunged into darkness for three days. And finally, all the male firstborn of Egypt perish at midnight. Creation goes absolutely berserk. Now, remember from past weeks, who can tell me what was Pharaoh's main job? What did the people expect from him? What is Pharaoh's main purpose? Does anyone remember? Pharaoh was to bring what out of order? Was to bring what out of the chaos of life? He's bring order, yes. Pharaoh's duty was to bring order. And his success or failure in the Egyptian afterlife, according to Egyptians' own pagan mythological religion, his success or failure in the Egyptian afterlife was based on whether or not he did a good job at bringing order from chaos. And so when creation goes berserk and Pharaoh and the gods can't stop it, how is Pharaoh and how are the other gods of Egypt doing in the eyes of the Egyptians and Israelites in bringing order from chaos? How's Pharaoh doing? terrible. In fact, Pharaoh accomplishes the opposite of order. It's so ironic. He actually brings chaos from order because he won't let the Israelites go. And the one and only creator God, our God, is revealing for all to see that Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt are powerless against him. They are failing miserably in bringing order, bringing order, they can't even maintain order 
from chaos. Instead, chaos from order is the result. Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, even by their own pagan religion, are failing miserably in bringing order from chaos. Instead, creation goes chaotic. It goes absolutely bonkers. The building blocks of creation at least. Water is no longer water. It's blood. Land is ruined rather than made dry. Light and darkness are no longer separated. Disease runs amok. Insect and frogs swarm out of control. Dust turns into biting lice. Every tree is stripped bare by hail. And on and on, creation, order, shalom, progressively and systematically begins to tear apart at the seams. Each plague foreshadowing the even bigger disaster to come if Pharaoh doesn't repent. Each plague leading relentlessly closer and closer to the disaster of the tenth plague. Or even worse, the utter defeat and death of Pharaoh and his army in the chaotic waters of the Red Sea. And Exodus relishes in bringing this point home, using extravagant and absolute language to describe the extent of the chaos from order that Pharaoh's stubborn and disastrous policy brings. For example, Exodus uses the words all or every or everything or never in the words land or earth in each and every plague. And each of those words or sets of words are used 50 times each in the five chapters of the plague story. When describing the number of lice in the third plague, the author says that all, all the dust throughout the land became lice, or gnats, according to the NIV. Really? All the dust in the land of Egypt? I mean, is that even literally possible? You have to, like, walk around on lice if the ground's gone, right? Much of Egypt is desert and sand and dust. All the dust of Egypt became annoying lice that were on men and animals, the Bible says. Wow! That's a chaotic amount of lice. Now, whether or not that all is literal or uh, an amazing hyperbole, it really doesn't matter. Either way, the point of Exodus is stressing just how incredibly inept And helpless Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt were to bring lasting order from chaos. Instead, the opposite is now happening given Pharaoh's hard heart. In the eighth plague of locusts, listen to the absolutes packed into these four verses. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt so that the locusts will swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. Ooh, a blowing east wind all day and night. Red Sea foreshadowing. We'll get there in a couple of weeks, sorry. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and on the fruit and the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Do you get the idea? Eleven times, all or every or everything or never. Pharaoh 
You're supposed to bring order, but everything is going crazy. What's going on? Or listen to the description in the seventh plague of hail. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. Creation is undoing herself. It's being ripped apart at the seams. Or the fourth plague of flies. I know I'm not going in order. It's okay. In the fourth plague of of flies, the author tells us there were so many flies that throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by flies. Now, how many flies would it take to literally ruin land? How do flies even ruin land? Even if they were 10 feet deep everywhere, how would that literally ruin the land? See, the author is making a point with extravagant language and description. Creation is being undone. Pharaoh is not a creative force. He is the anti-creative force, getting in the way of the creative force of the living God. And it's ripping apart at the seams because of his hard heart. And isn't it fascinating that from that fourth plague on, the land of Goshen, where the Israelites are, is not affected. You think that didn't make an impression on everyone? I mean, oh, to be a fly on the wall in Pharaoh's temple that day. You even got it before I said pun intended. Good job. (laughs) To be a fly on the wall in Pharaoh's temple that day when the reports start coming in from Egypt and Goshen. Hey, all these flies are everywhere. They're ruining the land. Ugh. Wait a minute. This just in. Not a single fly in Goshen. Ah, man, all our cattle died. Oh, this just in. Israelite cattle, fine. All our crops and plants and everything green everywhere and all Egypt destroyed by this hail. Oh, except in Goshen. No hail in Goshen. Or how about this one? What happened to the sun? It is so dark, we haven't been able to see anything. We can't even leave our places, which might mean houses or might mean even when we're, where we're standing or sitting our place, it's so dark. We don't even dare move, it's so dark. For three full days, what happened to the sun? Wait, weather report from Goshen, sunny and blue skies. Plagues 4 through 10. This report just in, Pharaoh, the Israelites are just fine. Are you listening, Pharaoh? After a while, Pharaoh has to start seeing these messengers coming and probably just says, I know, I know, I know, the Israelites are just fine. I mean, the Egyptians must have been impressed and dumbfounded by that. What in blazes is going on? Why Is Pharaoh over in over his head or what where's these all these gods of egypt that i've been devoting my life to my whole life or that i'm tempted to join if you're an israelite no wonder the egyptians couldn't wait for israel to leave it's a disaster their entire way of life for millennia and poor pharaoh he's such a bumbler and it's yet another example of humor in the bible Rye humor, 
here, but humor nonetheless. For the second plague of frogs, Pharaoh trots out his keystone cop magicians to fix the problem of the frogs. And what do the magicians do to fix it? I put it on the screen for you. Go ahead, you can cheat and read. What do the magicians do to fix the problem of frogs? They make more frogs. Brilliant. The Israelites, when they heard that, they laughed. Pharaoh doubles the trouble in his attempt to restore order. He can't do anything. He makes it even more chaotic. And you know, those magicians even, they catch it. And they catch it pretty early on. After only the third plague, the plague of lice, the magicians, they don't even bother to try and fix it anymore. You know, these magicians had neighbors too. Hey, buddy, Mr. Magic, you and your uh, crew going to try to help us with the lice like you did with the frogs? Do us a favor. Don't. And so during the third plague of lice, even Pharaoh's own magicians make this incredible statement to Pharaoh. This is the finger of God using God's name. And implicit is that statement is, Pharaoh, we give up. There's nothing we can do. We can't stand against this. And they give up and they don't try again. And Pharaoh is progressively through the plagues isolated from the third plague on, this self-proclaimed God of Egypt. And he, together with the demonic gods of Egypt, they stand alone and utterly ineffective against God's judgment on them, these gods of Egypt. Oh, Pharaoh, it just keeps getting worse. Plague 7, 8, 9, those are the plagues of hail and locusts and darkness. And can anyone tell me what those three things have in common? Does anyone know? Hail, locusts, darkness share something in common both in the Bible and in other Near and Middle Eastern cultures' religion. Anyone have a guess this morning? What hail and locusts and darkness are all common signs of what? Say it louder. Judgment. Good job. Who taught you that? Oh, <laughs> Graham. <laughs> he said you did this morning. He was at the earlier service. Tellingly enough, <laughs> that last series of three plagues before the tenth plague are all common signs of judgment, which is exactly what God said he was going to do through the plagues, bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. And these three signs of judgment, hail, locust, darkness, all line up in a row to bring the plagues to a climactic, universal pause, a silent literally dark pause between the ninth and tenth plague. Plague seven, hail, judgment is coming. Plague eight, locusts, judgment is coming. Plague nine, oh Pharaoh, judgment is coming. Are you listening? In that ninth plague of darkness, fascinating and telling choice for the last plague 
before death to life. Truly creation undone, death, or life to death, excuse me. Take a wild guess what the first thing the Egyptian god, a tomb, spoke into existence according to the Egyptian creation myth. I'll give you a hint. It's also the first thing God created in Genesis when he called for it by name. Let there be light. Fascinating. Creation has been going berserk, coming apart at the seams, one plague after another, all of God's order and shalom, shalom becoming undone, God systematically bringing everything back to the very moment before creation even began, when it was completely and utterly dark. Exodus brings us back to day one. Ground zero of creation. It's pitch dark. Totally dark, the Bible says. So dark, Exodus tells us, no one can see anyone else or leave his place for three days. It was so dark, the Bible says, that darkness could be felt. We Dutchmen used to say, wow, the darkness was thick as pea soup. Because we like pea soup. Darkness that can be felt, that's dark. And so here we are, Pharaoh, moving backwards, back now to the dawn of creation when everything was chaos. What are you going to do, Pharaoh? And you demonic gods of Egypt, call forth light? Go ahead and try Go ahead. Oh, you can't? And Moses goes to Pharaoh one last time. On the last night of the ninth plague, Moses comes to Pharaoh and tells him what will happen next in the tenth plague. And then the Bible says, Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Angry, some guess, Because it's actually now come to this. The firstborn sons of Egypt dead. Including Moses' own step-nephew, I suppose. Though he probably didn't know him. Really, brother, if indeed this Pharaoh was 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 one that Moses grew up with during his 40 years in the palace, really... Really, brother, has it now finally come to this? Have you really brought us to this? And isn't it ironic what began in Exodus as a failed decree by Pharaoh that all the Hebrew firstborn boys must be killed has now come full circle to Egypt's firstborn sons dying, the irony, Pharaoh himself in a way, naming that tenth and final plague as soon as the order to kill Israel's firstborn was out of his mouth. Two years ago, Jill and I had a a lifetime experience. We were invited to join our friend Ray Vanderlaan in Egypt while he filmed his next video series. 
Two of those DVDs are already out if you're interested. There's going to be a total of six. It's the single best teaching I've seen or ever heard on Exodus. And you can find them through Focus on the Family or Zondervan if you're interested. And Jill and I will never forget one particular spot that we filmed. It was in that tiny room in the Temple of Hathor. You remember? The Egyptian fertility god, Hathor, god of cattle. Where I learned for the first time that each and every plague affects an area of supposed control and authority and power of a key Egyptian god. I, I never knew that. God takes them on, these gods of Egypt, one by one, calling them out, daring them, really, to try and stand against him. Similar to Mount Carmel with Elijah when God chooses Baal's symbol of power, lightning and fire and thunder. God judges these Egyptian gods one by one. So you would confuse people that you are actually in control of anything? You fallen angels? Do you really want a piece of me? Then let's go. Take your shot. Hello? Ray shows this nicely, I think, in the following scene. Let's watch. Come. Let me show you something. We're in the sanctuary of this little Hathor temple. And like you might expect, there's a whole collection of the gods of Egypt who for God's people have created suffering and oppression and chaos. Carved on the walls are many of the gods and goddesses. And now his Hebrew people are suffering because of these gods. At least he says through Moses, I will execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. So God came and in some sense addressed the gods very specifically. So, which of you, which of you will stand before the God of the Bible? How about you, Osiris? The Nile is your bloodstream, they say. Will you stand before him? How about tomorrow? The Nile is blood. Stretch out your stick, Moses. Osiris is not God. How about you? Hecate, frog-headed goddess of childbirth. Will you stand? How about tomorrow a plague of frogs comes? 
And you, Geb, God of the earth, about tomorrow, out of the dust, come lice until you can't stand it anymore. Anyone else? What about you, Hathor? Cow goddess? Who nurses the pharaohs? How about you? Tomorrow, the cattle of the Egyptians will die. How about you, Seth, god of storm? Will you stand? Tomorrow, the hail will destroy the barley. And men of fertility, will you challenge the creator of the world? The locusts will come and eat what's left, and the wheat besides. And how about you, Amun-Ra? God of the sun, will you stand before me? About it's dark for three days, because the creator of the universe said so. Are you listening? Are you hearing me? How about you, Nechbet, protector of Pharaoh and especially the crown prince? Must I challenge you too? Will you stand before the God of the universe? Are you listening? This time, no one heard the cries. And clearly to an Egyptian, the gods, they had seen and understood to be the creators and controllers of the universe could not stand the presence of the God of Moses. But there's another side to the plagues. There's another audience. Because the Hebrews are watching too. And we learned that they too had been drawn to those gods. So what were they hearing? Come. Let me show you. Hmm. That little room with all of those hieroglyphics and those relief pictures of those demonic gods looking down at us. We hung back a little bit after the filming crew crew left and was just in there alone. And it still gives me the creeps. It, it, it felt like an evil place. So much confusion caused by those gods to so many people that God loves. Now we may not have to deal with Osiris today or Hathor or Hecht 
or Nekbet or Amun-Ra, but there may well be other demonic spirits lurking around your life and my life in experience. Spirits named depression or discouragement or loneliness. Spirits called rage or addiction or apathy. And maybe even an evil spirit behind a sickness or disease. And if you're wrestling with any of them without the power of God in Jesus Christ, you, like Israel, know what it means to be in bondage. And you know, those demons behind Osiris and all the rest of those gods of Egypt, they haven't yet been thrown into that lake of fire waiting for them on Judgment Day. And so, no doubt, they are still present in the world, creating their confusion. Perhaps many of them still in the business of false religion. Let me tell you, if you're battling evil and chaos in your life, God hears your cries. And so he's here. And he came. And he's here today offering to help you. Will you take his hand? In deciding whom you will serve, how about, how about choosing to serve the God who not only loves you desperately, but also the God who is the only one with the power to defeat all of the demonic forces of evil, all of those false gods combined. Just like he did in Egypt a long time ago. Will you give your life in service to such a loving, almighty God? Will you choose to allow him to call out the chaotic forces in your life, one by one? Will you join and partner with him in giving your all to defeat them once and for all? Resist the despair, the discouragement that causes you to settle for not even trying because it's too hard, it's too big, it's too impossible. God made his case to Israel then and now again today. Right now, he's making his case to each of us through the same story of Exodus, through the same story of the ten plagues. And so whom will you serve? Today, the first and second service combined, 18 people stepped forward and asked to be baptized. Each of them making that decision. So help them God, and he will, to serve God. And through baptism, they give public notice, public testifying to God, to all of us, and to that world full of chaos that they're going to follow Jesus. We'll close in prayer. And then Graham has a song where we'll transition to our celebration of baptism. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what an amazing story 
that moves from being a story to a people who lived a long time ago and far, far away to our story here today right now. A story, Father, where you put on display for all of us to see just how great and amazing and powerful and loving that you are. Help us, Father, to like these people here today about to be baptized. Help us, Father, to take your hand and your offer of help. Help us, Father, to, in Jesus' name, defeat the chaotic forces of evil, those demonic forces, those things that seek to confuse and hold us back from bringing you and your love and its message through us to a world who needs you desperately. Use us, Father, that the world may know there is indeed a God and salvation in your Son, Jesus, alone. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.